You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. If you want to learn about the music industry and you don't know where to go, tune in to WP88.7. Lord, please Don't break my heart Cause it can get hard I'm praying like, Lord, please I run from the dark, no gas in this car to take me away oh, Fighting all these demons, let me go Soon as I escape, I feel alone Last year got me on the edge, I'm so, I'm so overread I just need to break it down and flip it Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for being here with us. And Dr. Esteban, we have Sean Morgan of Seether with us. And why don't you just take it away, my friend? Okay. I was intrigued because I don't think I know of a band out of South Africa that has made as much noise as you have. But how did that, how did it happen? Um, well, I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think Dave Matthews has got South African roots. I'm not sure, but I, I, I've heard that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, <laughs> well, we, um, I joined, I moved from the city I grew up into a different city called Pretoria, and that was about 1997. Um, and I started going to technical college to study jewelry, uh, design and manufacture. And while I was there, I met another guy who was a guitarist, and, you know, I was playing in a bunch of different bands. And this guy that I it was in my jewelry class was a little older than I, I was at the time. And he had some friends that were starting a band and I needed something to do on the weekends. Cause I was bored and didn't really have any friends. So I joined this band. And at the time it was a five piece band where it was uh, a, a woman on, on a keyboards and, sh- and sing. She was the singer as well. And she kind of, um, she kind of had a voice quite reminiscent to the old lady at church that, said, that sings behind you and really belts it out and with enthusiasm and passion. So she, she was the front lady at the time and I was just a rhythm guitarist and the other three guys were, you know, I was 21 and the, or 20 years old and the other guys were almost all in their forties or close to it. So I was having fun with these guys. And one day we just decided to, you know, the, the singer and the lead guitarist couldn't make it. So the, 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 the remaining three of us decided just to sort of play around and see what happened and rehearse anyway. So I had some songs that I'd been writing for a long time that had been with me since I was 14 or 15. And I was just kind of throwing them out and they really, took to the idea of us being a three-piece. So that's where we, we continued on as a three-piece from there on. And um, basically what we would do is, is we would write songs and record them on a tape cassette on the weekend. And then we would take it to one of their other friends. These two guys have been friends for a long time. And they had a third friend uh, who was a, 
he worked in a jingle studio. So his job was to write jingles for, for companies and for businesses. So he had this little studio set up where it was basically not dissimilar to what I have, but he had a vocal booth and, he, and it was an ISO booth. So what we would do is on a Monday morning, the drummer would go in and deliver him a tape cassette. And then he would spend the rest of the week. Uh, um, he would, he would see, you know, sample out the drums th that he heard on the tape. And we would do about two to three songs. And then we'd go in on a Friday night um, and we would record our parts and the vocals and everything. And we'd walk out with a rough, a rough mix of two to three songs every week. And the going rate at the time was he just wanted some McDonald's apple pies and, and a couple, you know, <laughs> a couple burgers. So we did that for a few months. Um, we, we entered a battle of the bands competition as the three of us. Uh, we, we didn't, we didn't come anywhere close. I think we made it to the top five. Um, but one of the instrumental things for us was at the time there wasn't much, um, in the way of radios stations, right? So we had, we had one major radio station that was nationwide called five FM, which had, Typically, what would be so the most accessible type of music would be played during the day. So your pop stuff, your R&B. And then at nighttime, there was a guy called Barney Simon who would start playing rock music from seven till nine or seven till ten. And when I was a teenager growing up, that's the stuff I would listen to at nighttime. And I would basically sit with my, my little tape cassette deck and I would have it constantly on record and pause. And if I heard something I liked, I'd unpause it and, you know, I'd record this song. And then I, I so that's how I basically got to hear new music. Anyway. Long story short is he he was quite a big um, proponent of local music being as good as international music. So he started playing a lot of a lot of demos of bands that, that, that they would send to him. And we saw him at the Battle of the Bands and we gave him 17 songs that we had recorded with with, with this, you know, with the Apple Pie Commerce the sort of studio that we'd, we'd, been, we'd been going to. And we didn't hear anything. So, we, you know, for the next week or two. And so we thought, OK, well, he's not going to play our stuff. He doesn't like it. And then suddenly he just started playing one new song every night. And then, and then that became, he didn't stop playing a song every single night, sometimes maybe two songs a night and he just didn't stop. And then, so that was probably around about, and this is how far it was kind of, kind of crazy. So that, so that, that happened uh, in December or November of, of 1999. So then come January, the bassist quits and we find Dale because he's the only guy I know in the whole city that plays bass. So I, we, we give him 17 songs and say, hey, you know, we need you to, to learn these songs by Friday. Can you do it? He said, yeah, sure, he'll do it. So we played our first show that Friday, um, playing to the drummer's wife, the drummer's sister-in-law, and the bartenders, basically. Um, but what happened, interestingly enough, is, is that this Barney Simon DJ, he, he was such an, he was such a fan of the band that he actually went to the daytime, you know, the heads of the, of the station and said, Hey, we've got to try and do something with this band because it's, you know, he believed in it. So what happened was around about February, March, maybe April of, of two, 2000, we got our demo of our first single 69T got, got playlisted for daytime radio play. And I remember it was really bizarre because a we didn't have a, a record deal, we didn't have management, we were just we just had these really sort of rudimentary demos. But what happened was it started playing, people started really cottoning onto it, and the next thing we knew is we started playing to you know a hundred people, and then it's a thousand people, and then it's you know thousands of people. Um, we get invited to all the festivals and all this kind of thing. So then we get a, a record deal after that, um, which we signed I think in two thousand and one. And then when we had the album, when we were called Sarin Gas, we had an album called Fragile, which we then sent to record companies around the world. And then 
uh, Jörg Harker, who was a very big prominent figure in, at Sony in Germany, and he still actually is, is active in, in, in the music business. He loved the band, but at the time there was, uh, there was uh, restrictions on um, quotas. So if you, if, you, you know, if you were a German label, you had to sign, Seth, I believe it was 80% of, of German bands. And I think it's, it's been in a lot of countries was like that. Even in South Africa, it was like that. So yeah. he passed it on to Wind Up Records and, and Wind Up Records heard it. Then they flew us out for a showcase in Ju July or June of, of 2001. And we finished playing and they said, you know, they set us down and it was a terrifying experience because we were sort of in this, what I can only, it, it, it was a little stage in New York City. We'd never been there before. We were terrified. I, I break one of the strings on the only six strings that I own at the time. So I had to find a music store in, in downtown Manhattan before they come back and we can play the set. And um, it, we, it was this really bizarre setup because you have a stage and we could see ourselves in the mirrors. It was almost like, like, like looked like a dance studio in a way. And they just sat in front of us in these plastic chairs staring up at us. And it was this really intimidating experience where, okay, A, you don't want to make any mistakes. You want to impress them and you, you want to come across as you know, somewhat accomplished. Um, and I'm sure we were terrible, but, but they saw something in us and, and the head of the, the label, the president of the label at the time was a guy called Steve Lerner. He sat down, he sat us down and said, Hey, so here's the deal. We want to sign you guys. And, and, you know, at the time I was 21, I think Dale was, no, I was 22 and Dale was 21. So we were still, we were kids. And this was the kind of opportunity where, um, it was something I'd, I'd, I'd dreamt of my entire life, but I never thought it was possible. I just, I just sort of just wrote music and played music and kind of, it was my hobby and I never thought it would become something that it would become my job. But so we Hang on home. one sec. Hang on one sec, Sean. Um, so you're, you're at this with the band. Do you have a manager? Do you have a lawyer? Do you have anybody representing you? Or is <laughs> yes. you guys there sort of like naked in front of these executives? Yes. No, but we had, we had very, very, uh, yeah, well, we had management. They weren't, they weren't particularly competent, but uh, it was interesting because as soon as we got the traction from the demo being played on daytime radio, suddenly everybody was interested in us we had we we'd, we'd been to <laughs> we'd been into record company big wig offices and, and they would put on the on the on the the demo cd and they would just rock in their chair and just skip songs and be like yeah you know what it's not for us we don't we're not we're not feeling this right now so i said okay cool you know <laughs> it's, it's pretty difficult not to be dejected at that point but suddenly when 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 the radio play started picking up then we started getting some of these record companies changing their minds and in fact we got signed by wasn't even a, 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 an established record company. It was, it was a guy who made some money uh, selling EA video games and another guy who was a producer and they, they partnered up and started a label called Musketeer and, and they signed us and then we had to find management. And funnily enough, uh, the woman who started managing us had previously treated us with quite a large amount of disdain because you know we had, we had opened for her band. I didn't even have an amplifier at the time. So I had to borrow the singer's amp and he said, no, it's not a big deal. Then she tried to charge me a hundred bucks for it. And I said, but he said, it's okay. Why? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, yeah, you know, I, I don't have the hundred bucks to be honest. Anyway. So she became our manager because she, she knew Jorg Harker because uh, she'd worked at Sony previously. So there was a, there was a pre-existing sort of relationship there. So it made sense. But then we came to the States and it became very, very clear that it wasn't that she wanted to be a manager more that she wanted to make a big, a, a quick buck. So, after the first couple of months, we, you know, we'd been in New York City for a month. We left, went to LA. Our drummer quit. 
And she, we, we had to fire her because she just didn't know what she was doing. So then immediately followed by the, the lawsuits and, and everyone's trying to sue us for all of this money. At the time, make, make no mistake, we are broke. We live in a new country with basically the bags that we have that we're rolling around through airports. Those are our only possessions in the world, but we're getting sued for millions of dollars, which was you know, obviously very comical at the time. Um, but yeah, so that's that's sort of the beginning of it all. And then we moved, yeah, we moved to LA. We finished the album there with uh, Jay Baumgartner. And that took about three months. And um, then the next thing is it came out in May of 2002. And we just basically started touring and, and never stopped. Yeah. yeah. So you were here on a work visa or were you here? How did you get into the country as a band? Yeah, we had to we had to renew our visas every year. Um, so what we would have to do is, is we would <laughs> we, we got visas to get in um, and then we would have to return to South Africa at least once a year and then reapply for a visa in South Africa so we can get it again and then come back. So we did that for the first, geez, probably four to five years until we until they said, look, OK, we'll give you a longer visa this time, uh, which was nice of them. So we got a five year visa after that. And then I think. At that point, after the the, the 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 string of visas and the five year, we, we got to a point where we had we were now eligible for green card uh, uh, yeah. applications, which we did then immediately, so we could get rid of the visas, and that kind of made life a lot easier. Yeah. Um, and then most recently, Dale became a citizen in 2017, and I became in 2018. So we don't have to worry about the our little green passport that that gave us issues wherever we went around the world because it's one of the most, uh, I guess, it's one of one of the most um, faked passports on the on the planet so wherever we went we had to have extra visas to go anywhere like you needed work visas to go to, to the uk you needed you needed a visa to go to basically any country yeah. around the world and, yeah. and now with an american passport it's just a breeze you know right so i read i guess uh, that interview on brave word that um everybody was telling you basically you were getting advice but no advice on your, on your material. Yeah, I mean, when we first started, um, you know, I'd written those songs and, and the producer had basically just come in and, and made them sound a little bit more, I don't know, alternative, I think is what he was going for. But mm -hmm. when we got to the States, the what you find is once you get signed, they immediately don't want you to be what they signed. <laughs> so they go, this is great, but we want you to be more like this. We want you to, you know, sound like this, do what we think you should do. Um, and then you, you ultimately question it and you say, well, then why did you sign us to begin with? What's, what did you see? But anyway, right. so we, we have this back and forth, a lot of infighting with the A&R guy from Wind Up Records at the time and the producer in LA and us, but, and also the owner of the, of the label and everybody's just kind of telling us what to do. And at one point we said, listen, look, we don't want to put out, Fighting Game was the first single. We don't want to put out the demo version of that. We've worked hard on this version. We've recorded it from the ground up three or four times because every single time we finish it, the producer who hasn't been in the studio for the week comes in on a Friday and goes, eh, nope, do it again. And, <laughs> and that's what we did. And in retrospect, I, I think it was because it was his studio and he was making a lot of money the longer we were there, obviously. So um, there was not a lot of advice that was, that was I, I would say, constructive. Really, I found that in the, in, in the earlier years when we came here, um, I was very happy to hand off the reins to, to the label because they know, right? They know what they're talking about. I don't know anything. I'm 21, 22 years old. I'm, I'm, everything is, is dazzling and, and I'm, I'm like a deer in the headlights in, in Times Square thinking, wow, this is really different to what I grew up, the place that I grew up in. Um, so any advice was given to us. We, we took it 
yeah, we, we, we took the advice, not knowing that we could always say no. And it took us years to learn that, that the power of the word no is, is, is you know, it really is. When you learn that you can say no, it really makes people mad. But it empowers you to say, look, I'm, I'm not happy with what you're doing. Like, for example, if I'd known that when we first started, um, we our first album, Disclaimer, came out in May of 2002, somewhere thereabouts. And it was the it was the label's decision to say, okay, here's a brand new band. What we're going to do is we're going to put out 10 different album covers that do not prominently display that the band's name, right? Every album cover is going to have a person holding a different slogan. And we're going to, you know, we're going to make this a whole big campaign. And, and I think I was confused as to what the, the, the point was. It, yeah, I think that works maybe at a 10 year anniversary of, of a band or, or a 20th even, but you know, as a brand new band, here we go. You go into, which was still there at the time and rest in peace, the Virgin Megastore, you, you know, you walk in there and it's like, well, I don't know which one to pick. Are they all the same? Are they different? Is, is, you know, who are these guys? So I think that created some confusion. So that was, that was kind of the footing we, we started off, you know, our career with, as far as we just let other people tell us what they thought were good ideas. And we followed them because we didn't know we could say no. And at the time I would have said, no, I would prefer something more like, you know, the disclaimer to cover, which was something which I thought would, would at least be striking enough that if you walked in and you wanted, you'd seen it on TV or you'd seen it in a magazine, you know what the image is, you know, the, the, the pink faces with the black cover, you would walk in and say, oh, that's the one I want. That's exactly what I saw. Right. But when you don't know what the album title is, you know, and, and every single picture says different words on it, it, it kind of, I think, would confuse even, yeah. you know, the, the smartest of us. But yeah. so that was how we, that was the, the first piece of advice we took and, and should not have but as you again as you learn with each new album you say no no, no we we want this to be the single I, I know that makes you angry i'm very sorry no we can't go back to africa but we we do appreciate you not in, you know not uh, right. agreeing with our choice or our decision and we, we we got into many heated arguments because the i think the the attitude from their end was look we are giving you guys this amazing opportunity that nobody else would have so you owe us uh, subservience and you owe us the the the, the you know the, the the that you play the role of of somebody who just rolls over and says yes absolutely we'll do whatever you tell us because you know better than we do and obviously we owe you our lives and therefore that'll you know, <laughs> we're, we're eternally indebted to you and that's kind of I, I think subconsciously what a lot of the advice was anyway so, so fast forward a couple albums now we got a new AR guy and I get told I don't know how to write any songs. And up, at the, up until this point, we've released, you know, Remedy, Fine Again. We've put out Broken. We've put out um, Fake It. We've put out Rise Above Us and those kinds of songs. So we, this is now our third or fourth album. And this guy's telling me, no, 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 I'm, I don't know what I'm doing. And I go, well, huh. Yeah. So I guess I don't know what I'm doing because you who have never written a song must know better than I do. Again, and this was really, this was really the big turning point for me because we were working with Brendan O'Brien, who's, you know, who's a world famous and highly accomplished producer. And his opinion didn't match up with the A&R guy's opinion, thank God. So he had my, he was, you know, he was in my corner in this fight. So he basically ran interference with a label and, and said, look, the kid's fine, leave him alone. You don't need to do anything. But then come to find out the A&R guy at the time, uh, had written, had co-written, he was like one of 12 co-writers on one song or two songs on the Daughtry album that had done well, post-American Idol, and now he fancied himself quite the songwriter. So he's now trying to inject himself and everything to, I don't know, expand his portfolio. So that was, when we found that out, I just laughed him off and said, well, that's never happening. But there was a time there where it wasn't really advice so much as it, as it was criticism. 
there was never really advice to be honest from from the label side not not up until the most recent label that we've signed with now which is you know 15 16 years into our career we finally have a label that we are we really get on very well with and they, they respect us and we respect them um it, it was not so much advice ever um as it was criticism coming from the label side and and management was just sort of yeah we went through a string of managers who were kind of adequate at best i would say they didn't necessarily help further our career more than what we were doing could have um so you start you start realizing and i wish i had you know, I wish I'd been given some advice like that. The only advice I ever received as a kid was the first thing you want to do is hire a lawyer. So back to your question is, yes, that was the thing we were told. Hire a lawyer. That's more important that when you sign a deal and when you sign a deal with management, you have a lawyer in your corner who can make sure you don't get shafted. So that was the, the best advice we got. And, and we did. We hired a guy um, in South Africa at first. Turned out he wasn't really a lawyer. He was more of a, a, a uh, I don't know. He, he was a money guy, I think, but he, he presented himself as a lawyer, um, made a nice percentage off of us because we thought we could trust him. Again, being kids, we didn't we didn't think that this business could be as, as evil as it is at times. Um, but then when we got to LA, we hired a lawyer. And uh, from there on out, it, it, it certainly made a lot more sense that we had this guy. And it, for a short while, he even managed us in, in an interim period of like six months while we were out on OzFest in an RV with no AC in the middle of summer in Arizona. This was a good time. Um, but the, yeah, the best advice that I did get ever was to, to, to hire a lawyer first, because as much as most people sort of tend to just try and shy away from lawyers, if you have somebody who, who knows and understands the law and, and can sort of go over a contract before you ever get to sign it, because, you know, when, you, when you're a kid, you'll sign anything because you trust everyone. Like, oh, yeah, what does that say? Firstborn child, sweet. I'll, I'll sign this thing and we'll move on because I want the career. Um, so that was, I think, the by far the best advice I ever got. Turned out the guy sort of had bigger and better things on his mind, so he moved on with somebody else, which is fine. Um, and we've had a great lawyer ever since. Since I think we've we've had the same lawyer now for probably about eighteen or nineteen years. And he's a quiet, unassuming guy, but when he needs to be, um, when he needs to interject and and really sort of, you know, lay our case in front of the the labels or whoever we 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 making you know making deals with. It's good to know that there's a guy who's got our best interest at heart and, um, you know, doesn't, he's not there to just sort of profit from us because he's got plenty of other clients that make him much more money. So we just, yeah, he's just there to make sure we don't get, again, screwed over. Right. Now, um, I'm only laughing because I was on Epic Records in the 70s and this is oh, yeah. bringing back a million <laughs> memories, you know. Yeah. But, uh, did you guys at this time that we're talking, did you guys have a sound in your head? Did you did you have a, like a, an identifiable sound that you wanted to, to be, but yet I mean, you were getting distracted by all this so-called advice? I think that for me, I, I've never been a, a very, I've never been a gearhead or a, or a tone guy. I've, I've really been more of a, um, I don't know. I think the like an emotional guy. So if, if that makes any sense. So for me, I don't really think that the clean tone um, is going to make or break the song as much as which notes are in the in the riff or which notes are in the part, and then which lyrics and vocals go with that. Um, but yeah, do I have an idea of what I want to sound like? Sure. But when I was younger, I didn't really have any kind of concept of what I could create. It was really, I wrote most of the songs that I ever wrote as a, as a kid, as a teenager. It was um, this 
cheap guitar that I would plug a jack into, plug it into my dad's expensive stereo system, run a tape cassette and just play clean. And eventually blew the, the stereo and my dad was <laughs> highly unimpressed with me to say the least. So I had, that was my writing experience. And then I, you know, I, I played in bands here and there, but I didn't really play instruments. I was the singer because I'd been, in, I'd been in, in the choir at, at juniors, uh, what, we, what you guys would call elementary school. Um, so that was really... Yeah, but All I could that. imagine was other people would, would make the sounds and I would sing. And then I eventually got into, um, and even up until I moved to the States in 2002, uh, I still was using tape cassettes to record everything. I didn't use any kind of technology as far beyond that, as rudimentary as it was. So everything would be acoustics and me singing and, and never even as, I don't even think as intricate as having two acoustic parts, you know, record one, hit play, then hit record. And I didn't even think I got that far. It was, it was just very, very simple. So by the time we were writing songs, for example, for the, for the second album, um, well, Disclaimer was stuff we had already written for the most part. The second album was, 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 Disclaimer 2 was basically the same album with eight new songs, which were also previously written demos. So they were not uh, me writing new stuff. So when I started writing new stuff for the second album, which, which is uh, well, technically the second one, but the third comma in effect was, uh, that was the first time I'd actually started writing um, using modern technology, let's say. So I, I, I wrote uh, some of those songs in a garage with a producer at the time. And what he could do with the, with the, the sounds was incredible to me. I, I couldn't understand how his keyboard could make a drum, this, this drum kit sound. I mean, to me, it was like, wow. So already I'm starting to think, okay, cool. So if that's what I can do with demos, what do I really want to hear here? Well, can I, can I, can I, you know, convert what I'm hearing in my head to what's coming through the speakers? And you, you can to a degree when you are the one calling the shot. So now that I've produced the, the past two albums, those are far closer to what I was always hearing. But when you have, um, you bring your songs to a producer and you sort of, you know, hang your hat and you say, well, these are okay. Um, and they go, yeah, yeah, we can work with this. And then they, they sort of immediately start picking apart the songs and adjusting them in certain ways. And they tell you, they'll play this guitar on that part and then play this guitar on that part. And then we'll do, we'll run it through this amp because we think that sounds better. Yeah, it, 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 it sort of became, well, are we creating a, a Seether album or are we just creating a producer album? Because, you know, if you're using the same guitars and, and same tones on all of the albums you're producing, you're really just making different versions, you know, the same sonic version of different bands. And, and there was not much, I mean, we only got to use our own instruments that we play with through our own amplifiers we got to use on like the fourth or fifth album. There was, up until that point, we were marched into a studio and it was like, okay, you will be playing, like, for example, this Les Paul through that uh, Marshall, because that's how we like it to be. And then you'll double that with a, you know, with a Fender through a, through a Mesa Boogie, because that's how we like it to be. And it was never like, well, what do you guys sound like? You know, so it, it, it's sort of, it, it, it was very difficult at the time. And I listen back to some of the albums now, and I still think that the mixes were a little bit too glossy. I think that they were somewhat certainly a couple of albums in the middle there that were a little bit too polished sounding and maybe the the aggressive tones were dumbed down a little bit so that, that, so that it, it was a little bit more accessible sonically i think um and i would love to go back and remix those and, and really sort of um let that, em yeah, that, that that emotion translate more like uh, the fun part about doing the producer role and having an engineer who understands what i'm thinking and and, and has a very vast knowledge of tones which is not something i've always been into but you know, you got these digital profilers these days, the campers in particular are quite a powerful tool in the studio. So when, when I'm, when I'm now hearing stuff in my head, I can pretty much find it because I've got hundreds and hundreds of amps to pick from and I can, and I can pull one up and I'm like, okay, that's exactly what I want to hear. And 
you just, you know, I can immediately record it and put it down and, and, and I, I use logic, but I'm starting to get closer and closer to, to, to what I'm hearing in my head coming through the speakers. And it took, you know, 20 odd years. Um, but as soon as you remove, because a producer has, a, has an agenda, he needs to do enough, he or she needs to do enough to say, okay, they deserve the big paycheck and the four points on the album. They need, they've deserved that because they changed that one chord on the 11th track on the album. Right. And that, that, that's, <laughs> it's not always the case. Some guys want to play instruments on everything and then they want credit. Um, and that's, you know, another, another scummy side of the business, but yeah, I, it's, it's, it's an evolution and, and I, you know, I'm, I'm, I still, I still prefer listening to real drums and real instruments and, and, and untuned vocals for the most part. Um, but when I'm, when I'm sitting in here and I'm, and I've got ideas, I sort of run through things and I, you know, I'm hammering out drum parts and I'm, Throw, picking up a bass and throwing down a baseline, and, and then I'm not really too concerned about uh, tone. But the way the world works now is, I can send, then say, okay, now I've got that that wavelength. I can go back and I can alter it to anything I'm hearing. So I can take that wavelength and go, okay, well, that was a baseline I used, but hey, what does this one sound like? Oh, and I can go through fifty to a hundred different ideas and, and sort of fine tune it. So it's getting closer to what I hear. Um, but now, yeah, it, it, it wasn't back, in the beginning. We go back to just to sort of a lineage of the labels you were signed to. Yeah. Wind Up was the first in America? Yeah, Wind Up was the first in America, and we were with them uh, up until, I think they unceremoniously sold us off in about, I would say, 2013. 2013, yeah, because we found out that there'd been a sale <laughs> yeah, had when, right. when one of my, one of the fans who's now a friend of mine, who was on the street team originally in 2002, remember when street teams were a huge marketing tool? Sure. Um, so I've got a couple of friends from then that, that, were, that were out, you know, doing the marketing for us. And she sent me an email. She said, hey, did you see this? And she, and she linked an article and in, in the article, it said, you know, um, Wind up records, sells, Evanescence, Seether, Drowning Pool, and Creed catalog. And I was like, to who? And we didn't get a call. So we, I, I got to look up, I look up bicycle music. I'm like, they do back catalog stuff. There's, you know, Ella Fitzgerald, there's Ray Charles. There's like, the, we, we don't, what have we, have we just been sold into obscurity? Um, not being, you know, not being told any of the details. What subsequently happened is they, they started Concord Music. And they started all, you know, this really amazing rock department and hired a bunch of people. And, and it's, been, it's been growing ever since. So, yeah, there was, a, there was kind of a moment there where I thought, oh, I guess my career's over because we've just been sold. Nobody told us. I didn't even get a courtesy phone call from people that I knew at Wind Up Records who were, who were actually friendly. I was still friendly with at the time. I mean, a lot of those relationships had deteriorated over time because, um, you know, there's just, there's just a difference in, in ideas of what trajectory our, our our career should take on and which direction we want to move in. So we, we were butting heads with a lot of people, but I certainly had friends that were still there that knew this was happening and didn't even bother to send me a text. Right. Um, so that, yeah, that was, a, that was an interesting time. And then, so when we, when we, we basically moved from wind up, we were sold to Concord, which is under bicycle. And then subsequently Concord split into a, a bunch of smaller rock labels. Yeah. Uh, they bought up razor and tie. I believe they bought up the rest of the wind up catalog eventually. And I think dissolved most of it. Um, then they also have fantasy records, which is what we're on now. And then they have one or two others. So there's a whole bunch of subdivisions. So that's why you'll see there's, there's, you know, and for a short while I had my own label, which we were also signed to. So it was very confusing with all the logos on the back of the CD, but that's, that's basically where it's been. And your publishing stayed the same. Were you with? Yeah, man. <laughs> publishing was another one of those. This is the thing. Nobody gives you that advice either. So 
publishing has, has, has changed hands so many times. I didn't even know where it was up until a few years ago because it, it went from um, it originally it, it was signed over to the, well, the admin side of it was signed over to Windup Records Publishing, which was which was Dwight Fry. We did that for a couple of years. And then I guess they decided, no, they're going to sell it to somebody else, which they didn't tell us. So now we have our publishing out with somebody else. They sold it again. Then that was sold again. That was sold again. And I believe it changed hands almost, geez, not quite a dozen times, but it's up there. Um, and then eventually uh, it ended up with, I think, uh, I, I think it's now an, an affiliate of Concords. Um, and I still have my, you know, my, my company that was attached to that, but it just changed hands so quickly to the point where somebody, the new management, when we hired new management in January, um, they said, so who did you publish? And I, I just stared blankly and said, I don't know. And that's, you know, it, it's, it's embarrassing to admit that, but I also spent a vast amount of my career being completely out of it because that was, that made me more, more manageable. Right. So if, if managers could turn a blind eye to drug abuse and alcohol abuse and all that kind of stuff, and they could just keep you out there touring and making commission, that's what they did. And behind the scenes, all this stuff is happening and it, it's not detrimental to you, but you don't have any control over it. Like the songs I write, the publishing money is being sold, the, 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 you know, those, those products or, or those, those, well, whatever you want to call them are being, shifted left and right to this person and that company and, and we have we don't have a say in it it's, it's, it's kind of a helpless feeling um and there's really i don't have the type of money to buy back the publishing because they never tell you that in the beginning like hey hold on to your publishing as much as you can you know that's the that's the thing that keeps on giving one day when i'm gone was it 70 years i believe is the, is the term right now but then there's 70 years of, of that returning uh, you know whatever money is is out there to my family or whoever you know inherits it so that's the stuff that really matters. And um, yeah, they just, nobody, nobody, nobody cares to give you that advice. So you end up signing it away. Um, and that, that's just, I can't undo that mistake now, you know? All right. So there was no management of, uh, of date. There was no, like, uh, that's the funnel that you heard things from. Yeah. I mean, there, there, <laughs> there was a lot of, a lot of managers like to maintain um, distance between the band and the, and the label, right? So what they do is, is they, they receive a bunch of information. They have this lying in front of them and they say, okay, cool. Well, what do we want the band to see? And they, they choose then the information you see. Now, I despise people that do that because if it's my life involved in my career, a manager is there to manage your career. They basically work for and with you. But for the most part, you pay them to do a job for you. And sometimes it's anything from 10% of, of your earnings. And some people I've heard as, as high as 20 to 25. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, you pay them and they are supposed to help further your career. Now, when you have management that doesn't really know what it's doing, but is okay just taking 15% of whatever comes in and just as long as you can keep doing it, that's great, right? That's what they do. So what they would do is, and even with tour managers, it, it, it was this whole sort of web of lies at one point. But you have somebody requests something via email, either through the label or through, yeah, or, or they send it directly to management. And then they say, okay, cool. Well, oh, no, we don't want the band to have any part of that. Whereas it might have been something that I was interested in, right? So let's say, for example, um, I don't know, if somebody, if somebody, somebody from a fishing magazine says they want to do a musical expose on, on musicians that fish, I'm the wrong guy to send that to. Dale's the guy, right? So, but to just to, to not give me the information, 
is not the way you should be managing me because you, you're supposed to provide me with all the information. Then we make the decision as the band and management possibly. And we say, cool, we're, we're comfortable doing this. We're comfortable doing that. That makes no sense to us. So we, we would rather skip on that. Um, and, and that's how it should be. But a lot of managers prefer to, you know, keep, and a lot of bands don't care enough. Let's be honest. Yeah. I didn't care enough to make us think about it in the, in, in the day, back in the day. So they, they sort of knew, well, okay, we're getting, we're getting away with it. Let's just keep doing that. Cause it's kind of working. Um, what we have now is, is we have a weekly, a weekly zoom call. When I sit with my managers and we go through what's, what's going what's going on. We go through, uh, any requests that have come in, any show requests that have come in, any interview requests that have come in. Um, and we sort of go, yeah, I mean, if it makes sense, I'll do it. And, and if, if there's ones that they, you know, there's ones that I can't do because I'm doing something else, then, you know, we say, well, can Dale do it? Can, can one of the other guys do it? Because I'm, I'm already doing six that day. Is it cool if somebody else takes it? Because, you know, there are other guys in the band. I know people mostly want to talk to me, but it's, it's, you know, anyway, so that's sort of, I like that it's so transparent now that it's a process that I'm, I'm involved in from, from the start to the finish. And I get to say, yeah, they'll send me something and go, we know you don't want to do this. And I said, well, and I'll say, but I appreciate you showing it to me instead, because at least I can say, I might surprise you and say, you know what, maybe this time I, I do want to go play uh, at such and such venue that, I've, that I, I'm not really too fond of, but yeah, it makes sense because it's for a certain cause or, you know, nothing's ever set in stone, but a lot of managers tend to say they, 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 they want to keep the label and the band uh, thinking that they hate each other. And we just went through that last up until this year, a few years, you know, we went through a few years where I was being told my label were terrible. Uh, we should get us, we should get off them as soon as possible. We should, we should, uh, you know, we should uh, do this one last album that's on our contract, get it over and done with, give it to them, get out of Dodge, then start our own label, own the masters, bloody, bloody, blah. And it was, it was, it was all very romantic. Come to find that when they were, in, when there were meetings taken for us, this guy was talking about his biggest client, not us at all, right? He would never even mention us in the meetings. Come to find that the label are actually full of amazingly creative, enthusiastic, wonderful people that we got on with really well. Come to find that they love us and we love them back. And it's, there's, no, there's never been an issue with, on either side, but the management in the middle was creating this, this drama that didn't exist. And that's been almost every, every management company we've had up until now, which I'm, I'm happy to say. So in many ways, it feels like we had so many odds stacked against us that we just somehow managed to get through it all. And now, 20 years into the career, we, we're with a great label, we've got great management, we got you know great people everywhere, and it kind of feels like we're sort of having this 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 new chapter that, that I feel really positive about because there's really nothing stacked against us this time for the first time ever in our careers where we don't have people that don't care, people that pretend to care but they just really want commission, people that are hiding things from us, people that are taking advantage of of us behind our backs, people that are lying to us about the festival we put on for suicide awareness saying everybody's taking half pay. No, no, no. It turns out only we are taking half pay. Everyone else is getting paid festival pay. And it's my festival for my, my brother. Right. And I'm getting taken to the cleaners. And it was, it was literally people like that, that we've been, but you know, they it, to face to face, they're really nice. And they, they, they play a, a good game, but it's, it's amazing how many people, you, you know, you got to figure a lot of people are in this business to take advantage of the musicians and, and, and the people creating the music. And unless they really help you further that 
goal and, and that career, there's no, there's no reason to keep them around. Because mm-hmm. we've had literally, we've had dead weight that we've dragged along for so many years up until the start of 2021. So 19 years of my career where I just was just dragging these people along. They were lying to me. They were going behind my back doing heinous things. They were creating drama that didn't exist. And, you know, and, and the list goes on. Um, so, yeah, that was, uh, it, was, it was interesting to sort of have that epiphany and go, wow, man, these people just don't care except for, except for themselves. You know? Well, interesting that um, I don't know how much Dave told you, but these students that are, are on with us, uh, this is a music business course. Okay. You, you have been so honest and enlightening, I hope, to these students, because I went through it as well, as I said, in the 70s. Yeah. And he's not lying at all. It's not, <laughs> even, not even the, the idea that he's uh, exaggerating even. <laughs> Unfortunately, right? Really, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I like to be, I, I like to be yeah. honest. I mean, there's, there's, there's no reason to, to, to not be candid about stuff. I mean, I, I, can, I, can, I can certainly get... The, the elements of it out that frustrated me and, and angered me throughout the years without naming names and, and, and right. you know, taking victims. But yeah, I haven't embellished a single thing. And, and I mean, there, there have been times where um, I was told to go to rehab, but then told that, no, hang on, hang on. Can you delay rehab? Because we have this tour coming up. You know, you can go, you can wait. And, you know, that, that kind of thing happens too, because man, cha-ching, we need our 15% or 20% commission, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that's, I, I wish I was making some of this stuff up, but it's, it, it's, it's all of it's genuine. Let me ask you about that. Let me ask you about how long would you say of the, of the night, how long have you been sort of clean and how long were you out of it the way you said out of it? You didn't come here already doing drugs. That happened sometime. In- yeah. 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 I, I, I mean, I, I had a pretty, pretty horrible childhood and, and I, I just I basically ran away from home when I was 16 because my dad wouldn't let me play music um finished high school sleeping on other people's couches then then got on a plane and flew to england and lived on other people's couches for three months broke because i couldn't get a job but it was all in the in the pursuit of music right and this it was this this real dramatic thing that i was going to achieve um but then came home with my my tail between my legs and basically uh went to college and sort of decided decided i would i would you know take on a regular role and sort of abandon the dream and I'm sorry, I ramble. So I, I forget what the original, original question was, but it, it, you know, it, it's, yeah, I, I don't know. I got, I forgot, I forgot where, where I was headed with that. <laughs> sorry. Oh, I, I was asking when, at what point did uh, the drugs come in? Oh, all uh, oh, right. How okay. long have you been That's clean? So, so yeah. I, I have, I've been clean from drugs for three years, maybe three and a half years now. Um, I still drink a little bit, but you know, who didn't during the, the pandemic? I wonder. Um, yeah. So I spent, I, I basically, I didn't, I, I had a friend at high school. We smoked a bunch of weed, not a bunch, but we smoked weed. Um, I drank with him cause he was an alcoholic. He was a chronic alcoholic. And in fact, he was so chronic that he ended up dying um, a few years ago. And in a, in a really, I mean, it, he was just set up to fail. His parents were both chronic alcoholics. He then became one. He, uh, he yeah, he had a very tragic experience, which then led him to drinking himself to death completely. Um, but he was my best friend at school. So, there was that influence and then leaving high school um did that stint in, in london there was a bunch of um a bunch of like sort of downer type stuff it, it was a, it was an anti-anxiety pill it was it's not a very well-known one but it was a, quite specific to south africa i think anyway so we would do that and we'd, we'd drink beers and stuff and then when i came back to south africa after you know again not having any any luck out in in, in london um 
fell in with a bunch of guys at college that were, you know, drinkers, everyone, everyone drank, but then it happened to one night end up in, at a house party where they were doing cocaine. I was like, what is that stuff? And that was the beginning of, you know, geez, probably 20 years of doing that stuff. Um, so it, yeah, I came, I came with a lot of issues and a lot of broken parts to sort of put back together. So when we got to the States, you know, it's funny is, um, when you're out there in an RV, man, people throw everything at you. You can get anything you want for free because they want to hang out with you, right? They want to, they want to get on the RV. They want to hang out. They want to party. Then when you move to a bus, they still want to hang out and they still want to party. And then you find eventually when you can afford this stuff, nobody's giving it to you for free anymore. So you start buying a lot of it. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I, I ended up, I think there was definitely a lot of it was mostly recreational for me. I think, um, it wasn't an everyday kind of thing. When my brother died, I, I fell into a pretty long spiral for a long time um, and used all the wrong kinds of things to make myself feel better. And then as, as a result, now it's 14 years later and I still haven't completely dealt with the trauma of you know, his suicide and um, how that felt. Um, but I think what happened was I, you, know, you, you, you get to a point where a couple of things happened. My daughter was born... Um, and I turned 40 and we had just finished a really, really long run where I, I sort of pushed myself to the point where I'm, I'm up for three days and my, my, my hands are tingling and I can't breathe, but Hey, I can get one more line in my nose. And I figured, you know what? It's, it's, it's just not who I want to be anymore. My dad then passed away in 2017. Um, and a lot of things came into, you know, my, my, so my daughter's, my dad dies in, 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 uh, um, March of 2017. My daughter's born in July of 2017. I turned 40, and uh, I think either there or, or soon after. And I, it was just all of these things that sort of fell into place. And I just suddenly had like like it was like a, like a switch went off, and I was like, I don't want to be that person anymore. You know, I want to be somebody a who when my dad sees or, or hears or whatever whatever anyone believes. But if he's looking down, for example, from somewhere, or if he's just in the room, um, I want him to be proud of me and not look at me and go, what have, what have, what have you become? Right. And we had a, we had a few conversations like that when he was still alive saying, you know, he's like, he's like, man, it's like, I don't care if you drink a bottle of Jack a day, just stop with the cocaine. I was like, I was like, dad, what do you mean? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was just, you know, it, it was, it got to a point where, um, when I knew I was really in a bad way was, I don't know how I, I still managed to, to, to play for all those years and get through. Cause there were plenty of times when I feel like I was really walking a fine line. Um, but I got to a point where I just thought, you know, um, I'm just, I'm, A, I'm too old for that. I want to be a dad. I want to be present in my relationship. I want to be uh, the best version of myself I can be. And I, I don't want to be a statistic. I don't want to end up being found in a, in a bunk bed and everyone's like, oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah, well, we knew that was what it was going to be. You know, I don't want to be one of those where if they say, you know, he, he's passed away, everyone's like, yeah, that was the guy who always had cocaine in his pocket. So. Yeah, it must have been what, it, what, what did it. And, and geez, if I'd kept going, that certainly would have happened. I, I have no doubt of that because I had no self-control. I certainly had no uh, limits. I mean, it, there were times when I was, it, you know, I was a, you, at a festival and somebody hands you something, you don't even care what it is. You put it in you. The next thing is you're up for three days. And you don't know what you've been doing, right? You, and you, you're crying because you can't get to sleep. So there's a lot of these things where I was just, I was living completely i think almost in a, in a kind of self well definitely self-destructive because my brother was my best friend right and I, I still carry the guilt which i'm working through but 
I still carry guilt of some sort that I could have helped him somehow. And I should have, I mean, I was in a hotel room just across the hallway from him, but I, I guess I wasn't enough at that time. Right. So I've, I've always felt bad about that. And I, I spent years and years and years and years suppressing that guilt and the shame of it. And of course the pain of the loss. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting how you can keep lying to yourself as well. Like, Oh, you know, you're like that you're taking aspirins just so you don't have a heart attack. Right. Cause you think, Oh, well, I've seen if you chew a couple, you, you, you know, thin your blood enough that you'll be fine. So you, you really living almost this, this, it's a definitely a double life because when you get off the bus, everyone thinks, Oh yeah, there, there's the guy that sings in the band and oh, everything's cool. And everything's great. You know, life is, is amazing. You get back on the bus and it's a completely different world. It's, it's, it's dark and dingy and sorted. And it, it's, 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 it's really ugly to live like that way where, where I was. So I got to a point where um, I'd be up for three days and we had a show and I'm, I'm like 15 minutes before the show. I'm like, I think I'm going to have a heart attack. I don't know. What I'm going to do is I'm going to drink a couple drinks here to sort of just sort of even out again. And I'll go to the band and say, sorry guys, I've been up for three days. I hope we can get through this. And I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm probably going to be a disappointment. And it just really felt like, um, I'd lost control of myself to the point where if, 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 if drugs were so important that I couldn't even go a day without them, I don't want anything to have that kind of control of me. You know what I mean? I, I, I'd never been that way growing up as a, as a teenager. Everything I achieved was through my, my willpower and putting my mind to it and trying to get to trying to achieve a goal. But when I reached a point where I was completely powerless and, and, and I was controlled by, um, cocaine mostly uh i i kind of i kind of disgusted myself a bit too so i i just turned it off and i, I haven't gone back ever since i haven't i didn't i didn't you know i, I didn't need a, a program to go through or, or any kind of you know uh, process to follow I, I i just turned it off and, and I've, I've never looked back and i've, I've never been happier uh, you know on top of that i don't use social media so my my life is it's great i'm, I'm in an insular bubble um but yeah there was there was definitely times when it was it was touch and go with was i going to make it through the day yeah I, I actually ended up i ended up collapsing on a stage in boston um because i've been up for three days and my blood sugar was really really low so i was thrown in the back of an ambulance and and taken to a hospital around the corner and then you know i was i was in there for they gave me orange juice to drink and a peanut butter sandwich to eat and they, they gave me a bunch of uh, uh ivy saline ivy yeah so it was it was it was you know, when you get and, and you when you when you're in your 20s or even your early 30s, you're like, roll with the punches. I'm going to do I'm going to keep going. That was close, but it didn't get me there. So it's just right. it's a stupid thing that we do. But um, so I, I wish I wish I could have gone back and told myself at 21 and 22. Hey, kids, slow down. It's, it's really not it's not worth it. You know, thankfully, I haven't done any permanent damage um, to myself. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's it, that's not often the case. So I'm, I, I, I've, I've definitely. I'm glad that that something happened and it, it was maybe the perfect storm of things, you know, the, of, of the, the birthday, the daughter, my dad. Um, I think all of those things sort of just came together and said, you know what, look, reevaluate everything. Uh, what do you want? What do you want the next 20 years to look like? If you have that many, because <laughs> of the way you keep going, you won't. Right. So that's really what happened. Well, the reason I bring, I also ask you that is, I've had this discussion with tour managers and with some other managers and then Scooter Braun um, talked to us about Amy Winehouse at one point. Mm -hmm. Your managers at the time, the people managing you, what's yeah. their role? And this is all opinion. There's no right or wrong or well, for you there is. 
was it their job to have stopped everything and got you clean? Or was their job to earn as much money for you as possible? Meanwhile, of course, they're getting their cut of it. Where, where right. <laughs> for them to do it, especially when they're dealing with a guy who knows what you, if you would have even listened to them, if, right. if they said, Hey man, stop, we're going to put you in a, in a, in a place right now. Well, they, often don't care enough about the person. You know, we become a product to a lot of people. You, you, to a label, you're a product. To managers, you're a product. To agents, you're a product. You, you don't exist beyond how much can you earn them. Um, so I don't think that's anything new. We just, we just had a string of them, and every single one was like that. The, the, their job in their minds was to make money. And they, they, would, they would say, oh, no, hey, look after yourself. But really, yeah, there's, a, there's the tour bus. You know, let us know when the tour is over. It was never really... A, uh, a concerted effort um, to to help. Like I said, there was that rehab. And it's like, hey, you know what? Why don't you promote? Why don't you just postpone the rehab? Because we got this great opportunity for you guys. It's like, well, then why are you guys telling me to do this one thing? But then when there's money coming, you know, comes into the picture, then it's the, my, I'm, I'm no longer my health is no longer important. Your bottom end is more more important. So that's that's that was definitely the motivation for them. The way I see it is is when you when you have the right people. You should be able to trust each other enough. And because I don't see a management as somebody who works for me and I'm their boss. I think we work together, you know. Uh, even though you know they take a percentage of what we earn, my, my my feeling is if they earn that percentage, and then by all by all means take the percentage. But you know, that takes a proactive mindset from these people. A lot of these people just don't care because you have what you find as well, you you would know. There's a lot of big management companies with a lot of bands and they only really care about their cash cows. So you have, you know, the bigger earners and then you have these little guys just to fill it up and, and, and bring in some more money and maybe train up some, some day-to-day people, but they don't really care about you. Not as much as they care about, let's say, like, let's say w- w- there was a management company called the firm, which is now dissolved. Um, and when we first got to the States, you know, they had big bands, like they had corn, I believe they had Snoop Dogg. They were like the cream of the of the of the crop as far as management companies go. And I always felt I didn't want to be part of that because there's too many other people that they would care about and not enough about us. So we always went with sort of smaller, more independent managers, uh, for better or worse. Um, so, but that was how I felt about it. I didn't want to get lost in the in the maelstrom. Um, but their job really is. I mean, that's a tough question, I guess. Right? It, you you can't expect them to to especially when you've just met them, for example, you can't, you can't expect them to care about you as a person, but you would think after a certain amount of time has gone by and you've been at each other's houses and you've been at each other's, you know, weddings or whatever, and you've been in, you've, you've been in at dinners and you've had all of this social interaction. You would think that at some point they care about you more than the, than the money. But for some people, it's just not like that. Some people, they just, that, that's, that's their main goal. That's their focus. And as long as you keep doing what you are, I mean, for example, there was that very big, um, that leak with uh, the emails that came out where, I mean, I'm, I'm not really going to say the names, but there was an, an, a management email from one manager to another about a very big pop star saying, we don't really care about her Coke habit as long as she's playing shows to the, something to the, to that effect. And you know, this was a huge star at the time. And unfortunately those were our managers. So we find out in the news or, or you know, in the press that our managers are talking about a very big artist like that. And I thought, well, well, geez, what do they talk like about me? <laughs> because compared to her, I'm a complete train wreck. So mm-hmm. I lost all confidence in them, knowing that they, they had thrown her under the bus and basically had said, look, 
as long as she's playing shows and making money, then we don't care. And that's when I, I really, I figured it was time to move on. Um, but there's a lot of that that happens, you know? And I, so again, I think a manager's role is to not be necessarily a friend or, or uh, um, you know, somebody to you, you, you can, you can lean on emotionally that they are there to say, okay, what do you want to achieve? These are our resources. How do we grow a bit? How do we make you more successful? How do we all get more successful together? Instead of just saying, hey, oh, you guys are doing this. That means I'll earn X amount a month. Cool, let's just do it. Let's just keep letting the, the bus roll down the road, right? And then I think too often that complacency comes into play. Um, so to try and, but they're so good at hiding those red flags. You never really pick up on it until it's too late. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Even um, who is your agent? What agency are you with now? Uh, we're with UTA. We've got Ken from English. Oh, yeah. uh, okay. Ken always guns and roses and yeah. Yeah. Ken's great. And he, you know, he was, he was one of the guys, he was a high, you know, he's highly sought after. And we've sort of been around a couple of different booking agencies and, and, and we had some really nice guys um, who I was really fond of. I just didn't feel like they really uh, at all the various different agencies, there were some that were nice and friends of mine to this day that I just didn't feel like were uh, assertive enough. And then we had other agents who just didn't care about us at all. And, and basically didn't, you know, again, really sort of concentrated more heavily on their, their marquee acts and didn't so much care about us. So, so we spent, you know, a period of three to four years, not getting great opportunities, not getting much that, that sort of helped us build or further the career. And because we had management who was complacent as well, it, it, it was just all of the, it, it, I almost feel like they were all sitting in, in, on Friday nights in, in, a, in a bar somewhere high-fiving each other because they were all friends and knew that they were doing this and, and that we were just on the outside kind of not paying attention and being taken advantage of. So um, when you find a good agent, you, you, that's another thing you want to hang on to. And Ken's certainly, he, he was, he's been a great help over the transition from the the, 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 the other management company we just moved on from uh, in January and he was he helped me find new management companies uh, as, my, as well as my business manager who helped me find people to talk to so he's uh, he's quite proactive and he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a really he's kind of a go-getter you know he's a, he's a really he's a really they call him I would call him a bulldog agent he's the kind of guy that goes to bat for the bands instead of just saying oh yeah no, that's fine we'll take whatever we'll play whenever and we'll play wherever he uh, he is far more <sighs> Yeah, I think he's far more direct and, and, and when he doesn't like something, he'll let somebody know. And not in a mean way, but in a firm way. And he's, he's been around for a long time. So I, I, I trust him and his judgment. It's interesting that you talk about how um, they weren't paying attention to you because I would have thought, because I worked for uh, WDHA Radio in New Jersey, which still plays a lot of Seether. And um, you were, you know, there, I don't want to... Um, disrespect you but there was like a heyday of seether you know you guys were there was a time that you were peaking and you guys were really i would have thought may have been making quite a bit of money for people especially even on the on the live side from merch and from ticket sales and festivals and all of that and yeah. at that point you feel that they weren't giving you the attention that you deserved well i i, I don't think that they helped sustain a lot of that because what you know there's we've we've sort of had to rebuild a lot of the momentum that was lost through, um, again, management that wasn't concerned about sustaining. They were just riding that wave as long as they could because they knew there's, there's something else along on the horizon or there's something else that they can, they can dip 15 to 20% out of, the, of the, out of that kitty and that one and that one. And certainly, um, 
any management company that we've we've been with at least for the past decade or so has got much bigger acts than us. Yeah, we, we we've never been the biggest act on on certainly the past up up to and including this this management company we're with now. The past three have not been. We, we've just sort of been you know uh, we've done well, but that's not something that would ride, elevate our status to the the top of their roster. Um, and there's been a lot of a lot of apathy in that sense. You know, again, we had agents who weren't capitalizing on that. We had we had management who wasn't capitalizing on that, and we had a label that wasn't capitalizing. On it. So you had, you know, we've got, like you said, we have we have a song on the radio. It's doing well. Um, we don't get any kind of ad buys. We get nothing. We there was never any sort of active procurement of, of, of opportunities for us. You know, it was it was like, okay, well, if it doesn't come to us, we're not going to find it. Because we, we're perfectly comfortable just taking the commission and, and sort of riding it out. Now, in my mind, if you're a manager, that's part of your job. And, and, you know, not so much an agent, but maybe. And a label is you try and find sync licenses. You try and find movie spots where you can get a, a song. And you try and do all of these things. And wind-up records in the beginning, they would, they would get the rights to an entire movie and just fill it with wind-up bands. And then maybe some, of the, some other labels' bands. So that's kind of, that was their model. Um, but yeah, when they when they dissolve, that they, they, they can't keep doing that. So you, you've got to have people that say, okay, um, where would this fit? What is a what is a good partner for this band to work with? You know, um, and if you just don't have those, and if you and if you're working with, uh, uh, you know, we, we've never been on a major label, we've never had, ser- uh, you know, we've never really had seriously uh, up until now again, but we've never had serious management that that w- thought beyond their cash cows. So you don't have the power of a major label. You know, you don't have, if you're on wind-up records, you don't have the resources of Warner Brothers or Sony or BMG or Universal. Um, now, you know, we signed, the, the other thing we had is we had merch companies that either ignored us again for bigger bands, which happened a lot, or we had, they just weren't big enough to keep up or, or they folded, especially in the, in, the, in the pandemic. So we never really had a great opportunity there either. It's just, again, it's been one series after another of missteps. So now we have new management, new, you know, a whole new relationship with the label. We now have a new merch company, which is now the Warner Brothers merch company, which is a, it's the biggest thing we've ever been part of. And that's 20 years into the career. Whereas you're getting baby bands being pushed with a bunch of money from a label, trying to make them a thing. And if you shove it down somebody's throat enough, they start believing you. I mean, to a, to a degree, I guess, but it's, it's, when you have a, a string of people that don't care, don't really actively pay attention to your career as such, um, you, you, you're destined for ultimate, no, you know, not, not for success or, or any kind of great success. Like now we have a weekly report on what we've done, the spins, where, where streams are, um, you know, where the singles are on the charts, all those kinds of things. And we, we have a weekly update of that as well. We have a weekly update from the label. We have one from our management. We have the management call. So it's, it's a completely different world we live in now. There's so much information and so much communication. And they are saying, look, we've got this opportunity. Do you want to do a, a limited run hoodie with this company in Chicago? Absolutely, I want it. Do, you, do we want to try and do we want to do a limited run of, of a shoe with this company? Yes, we would. Because these are opportunities we've never been given. We were never given these things to, to explore or to, to capitalize on or, or to sort of say, hey, that's not really us, but thank you so much. You know, we, just, we were just told, go play. And when you're done, we'll send you home. And at times, sometimes we would buy out for nine months and have, you know, a day off a week, if that. And they just kept us out. And, and, and it really was just, it was make the money for them because they don't care about us, honestly. And that's, that's what it came down to. And it was, when you realize that, that's, <laughs> it's a pretty, pretty heartbreaking moment.
and your voice could hold out for all those shows, you know, yeah. once a week. Yeah, I've 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 uh, I've only ever canceled um, one show for my voice, uh, and that's that's even yeah that was with with bronchitis. But I, I can get through bronchitis even as well. I've got little special elixirs and things that I make. But I've my my thing is when I'm singing, um, I don't warm up or anything. I I, I don't particularly have any kind of regimen I follow. I just have a cocktail basically and then go out and sing. Um, but I, I, yeah, I've, I've, I've never really struggled. The only time I do struggle is when it's been a long break. So let's say um, I've been off the road rec- recording an album. We've been out, we've been off the road for a year, year and a half. And you go back out and you sing the first weekends with the shows. I get overly excited. And so I push too hard and I blow it out and I need two days to recover. And then I'm, I'm usually good. I, I've never really struggled with that. I've never had an issue. So I'm thankful for that. But I also, you know, I've, uh, I come from a, I mean, I, my mother's side of the family is incredibly musical. Um, I, I did a lot of time in choirs as a kid. So I, I've never really doubted my, 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 my I guess, the, the strength of my voice. But I also will, will craft a set list in such a way that I'm not going to come out of the gate singing the highest notes, right? I'm going I'm I'm to save those for the middle to the end. Um, so I can, I can actually warm up with the set list as well and, 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 and make sure that it flows well. So there's a whole bunch of things that go into it, but yeah, I've, I've never really had any, any issues. This has been so, somewhat mind blowing. This is not ex- where I expected this to go by any means, but it's actually gone in a much more interesting direction. Right. Um, so this, <laughs> well, I mean, I could, I could literally probably bend your ear for another two hours, <laughs> but I, I think you probably will get kind of tired of it, but that's all good. So we're going to end it. So do you know what we do at the end of, I'm sure you have no idea. At the end of every radio show, do you know what we do? No. No. Well, we don't say hello because that would okay. be ridiculous. That would be for the dyslexic listeners. No, at the end of every show, we scream at the top of our lungs. You're not warmed up. You've had no elixirs. So I don't expect you to do that. But for us, we say, Okay. <laughs> Give me a countdown. I'll do it. <laughs> Three, two, one. <laughs> yeah. <Adios! laughs> time.